Well, Element, today I get to start with some good news and some bad news. And if it wasn't a live stream and you're in the room, I would actually ask, what do you want first, the good news or the bad news? But because I'm someone who always likes the bad news first, like I want to get the shot before the lollipop, that's going to do for you. So, so here's the bad news. The bad news is next week is the time change. You're going to lose an hour of sleep. So I know, horrible, one of the worst days of the year, bad news. But the good news on the other side is that when we originally started this Lent journey, we told you you were giving something up for 48 days. Uh, what I did is like the whole journey's eight, and you're giving up something for six of that, and I put those two together and I came up with 48, uh, but that's not really how weeks work, so I can't do the math in my head. Apparently, that's why I'm not a rocket scientist. So actually, when we, when we actually add it up correctly, it's only 42 days you're giving something up. So you, that's like six days shorter. So there's your good news. You're welcome. That, that's how we're rolling with this. Uh, again, don't forget, we are uh, looking to open Element in just a couple weeks. We're going to do like a soft opening on the 21st to see how things kind of go and then do, you know, a really bigger opening on uh, Easter itself. So keep that in mind. There will be stuff that come along with that uh, and you will get more information as we move forward. Don't forget, in the middle of the message, uh, we're going to put up a slide. The slide's going to have a question on it. And during that question, you can pause the live stream, take care of your kids, get some copy, maybe even answer that question if there's anybody else in the room with you, or maybe just answer the question yourself out loud, and then hit play again and keep going with the live stream. If you have a smart device, you can download an app. It is called Uversion. In Uversion, click on More and then Events, and we will come up by GPS in your smart device if you're in our local area. Uh, if you're not in a local area, just type in the zip code 93455 and we'll come up that way. But in that, you're only going to get verses and the announcements. You're not going to get all the other stuff that normally is in there because we want you guys going through the journey guides with us. And if you haven't gotten a journey guide yet and you're out of our area, just send an email to connect at ourelement.org and we will get one to you. If you want one right now, uh, you can download a PDF on our website, ourelement.org, and you can swing by this week anytime and grab one if you don't have one. Uh, my name is Aaron. I am one of the pastors at Element. If you're so inclined wherever you are, you can stand with me for the reading of God's word. And this is Job chapter 8 verses 5 through 7. And these words are spoken by a guy named Bildad. And this is what Bildad says. But if you will seek God earnestly and plead with the Almighty, if you are pure and upright, even now he will rouse himself on your behalf and restore you to your prosperous state. Your beginnings will seem humble, so prosperous will your future future be. And Bildad doesn't have the greatest theology, and we'll talk about that. Let's pray. Uh, Father, we ask that today you would take us and move us into new areas where we understand your goodness and your grace. The words that have been spoken over us time and again about how good you are and your redemption that is given to us, that you have brought us to yourself. I ask that you would teach us to understand that better through what we look at today. And we would walk with you more closely, speaking to the world of how good you are because of what you have done in us. Amen. All right, so we are in week four of the book of Job. I know you're thinking it feels like this should be week 20 because whatever you've given up, that's how I feel because of sugar. I'm just like, oh, we've been in this for like months, right? No, uh, just a couple weeks at this point. Uh, Job is an Old Testament book. It is 42 chapters long, and it looks at pain and suffering and catastrophe and loss and how people deal with that, but also who God himself is in the midst of it. And so as we do this Lenten journey, 
journey together. Even though Element is a non-denominational church that doesn't normally follow a church calendar, we're still doing this Lent journey together to bring us back into rhythm with one another and with God himself. We want to be a people who, you know, we've been kind of separated for so long at this point. We want to come together all walking forward doing the same thing. I was talking to somebody this week and they said, you know what I'm giving up for Lent? And I said, what? And they said, Lent. And I said, okay. And they said they come from a really religious tradition that growing up they always did Lent. And they said, so I'm giving up Lent. And I go, well, that's fine. As long as you give it up, every time you think about not doing it, you actually start to pray, you go closer to God, we're doing the devotions, we're all moving forward together. Because the point isn't doing these things. It's to grow closer to who God is, to remind us every day of his goodness and his grace. And that when we look at the book of Job, we understand that the problems in our world are not because creation is evil, but because because man has run away from relationship with God. And many of the things that happen in the world today, we bring upon ourselves. Like most of the pain in our world today is the result of this thing called sin. And I know when we hear this word sin, we're like, I don't like that word sin. The word sin is terrible. But the truth is we have rebelled against God and his goodness. And that makes us and the world around us fallen. It is broken. Now, three years ago, I told you this little story that a guy named Scott Scruggs talked about how when he was a little kid, his parents said to him, you know, if, if you eat too much candy, you're going to get cavities. That's the way for his parents to say there's pain that comes from your choices. But kids can't resist candy. Like you go to Halloween, they always want to eat, eat the candy. And so he ended up getting cavities. And after he got cavities, his parents says, well, was it worth it? And he was like, well, yeah, totally. So it's kind of a bad example. But the point is that God gives every single one of us the same warnings he gave to Adam and Eve. If you go your own way, if you stop trusting me, you will surely die. And that's not necessarily a matter of punishment. It's just what happens as we run run from relationship with God and who he is. Scott Scruggs says this, the real punishment for sin is that we're left to live in it. I mean, not eternally. I mean, God does rescue and save us and bring us back to relationship with him. But in our world, there are certain consequences that have come about because of our sin. And there is suffering and heartache and pain. And Job is a book that looks at these ideas of pain through Job himself and also a bit from the outside as well. It shows us certain things that are bigger than just our choices. And what I mean by that is in chapter 1, calamity comes upon Job, really through no fault of his own. In chapter 2, the same thing happens again, and yet Job refuses to curse God. He really accepts where he is in life because he understands that God is good and God is sovereign. Now, Job's wife doesn't understand this, and neither do uh, Job's friends. And what you see is that Job's three friends, they show up in the book. And for seven days when they first show up, they just sit in silence with Job. They walk through the the loss that he had of his family and his health and his wealth, and they're just with him. It's a brilliant display of love and affection. But after seven days, they start to speak. And a lot of the things that they say are not that great. Now, last week we talked about this guy named Eliphaz. Eliphaz shows up and he goes this route of empty platitudes. Maybe he doesn't know what to say, so he just starts throwing things out. And Eliphaz talks for five chapters. And again, I gave you a few of those things last week, but I heard another thing the week I was writing this message and it made me angry, which is never a way to write a sermon, by the way. But anyway, here you go. Uh, I read about these people who had a little girl who died. And somebody said to them, well, God needed another angel in heaven. 
That's a platitude for one. Also, extremely wrong. And I feel like if anybody ever said that to me, like say something happened to my wife, you better take a step back because I'm small, but I'm wiry. And I might just punch you if you said something like that. We have to understand one of the most important things in the Bible is that God does not need anything from us. Also, people don't become angels. That's just bad theology. Could you imagine what it would be like if God's like, oh, my angel quote is down. I'll take that little girl or that man or that woman. How weird would that be? God is complete in himself. It's another reason when we look at the book of Job, we get a much clearer picture of who God himself actually is. We also have to see throughout the book, That all the things that happened to Job are not because God needs something proved to him. God knows Job's heart. God knows exactly what Job is going to do. God knows us much better than we do. We must understand that. Uh, Someone actually got on this person's case for the God needed another angel comment, and their response was, well, I'm not perfect, just forgiven, and God knows my heart, which is like, ah, more platitudes. And the frustrating thing is, those things are actually right, right? We're not perfect, and we are forgiven, and God does know our heart. But sometimes we just throw these things out because we don't simply want to say, yeah, you're right, I'm wrong, I'm sorry. We don't want to do that. We need to be a people who just own our mistakes. And I get that that's very hard in the cancel culture that we're in the midst of today, but we must be able to do that with one another, especially in the body of Christ. When someone messes up and they apologize, we are able to accept that apology, to walk forward with them, because God wants us to be a people who reconcile with one another. Now, what we need to understand as we step into the book of Job today, that we're moving past the platitudes and we're going to a place of really horrible theology. Uh, In understanding what Bildad starts to say to Job, there are a few things we have to understand that stand behind his reasoning and who he is and, and where he comes from. So, uh, first thing, step aside from platitudes. Next thing, speak to people in need exactly where they are. Let's love people God calls us to. So again, Job's second friend, Bildad, uh, kind of says a lot of stuff that drives me nuts because Bildad is a guy who has this name it and claim it theology, this blab it and grab it. You have enough faith and God is going to give you whatever you want. And Job is in this spot where he has lost everything. He has lost his wealth, his health, his family. He's in a horrible spot and Bildad shows up, well, this is just your fault. You must have done this. Again, in the verses we started with, Job chapter 8, verses 5 through 7, this is what Bildad says. But if you will seek God earnestly and plead with the Almighty, if you are pure and upright, even now he will rouse himself on your behalf and restore you to your prosperous state. Your beginnings will seem humble, so prosperous will your future be. Now, writing a sermon for today was actually kind of easy because I have talked about this on numerous occasions and in numerous different ways. The idea that God can only bless righteous people, that God only blesses the good guys. The problem with this view is that there are no good guys. We are all bad guys. This is a problem that a lot of people have with the scriptures. They say, what is, the scriptures are just full of horrible people doing horrible things. And that's exactly true. There's a conversation that took place close to me about a week and a half ago. I wasn't involved in it, but I was, I was eavesdropping on it. And these people were talking, and one person said to the other, I just can't believe anybody believes the Bible. because." And they started talking about this story in the Old Testament where these two girls were living in a cave with their dad, and they wanted to have children, so they got their dad drunk and slept with him and had babies by that guy. And they go, and they said, why would the Bible condone something like that? And it doesn't. It doesn't. It's like, don't do this. That's why it's there. It's to show how horrible and dumb we are at times, but also the redemption of the goodness of God. Because eventually, generations later, out of that sin, God brings redemption to that in a woman named Ruth. And Ruth will actually become an ancestor to Jesus. 
And so God can redeem even the most horrible things that have happened in the world around us. Read through the book of Judges sometimes. I, one year, because it's going to take that long, one year I'm going to take you through that book at some point. I don't know when, but we're going to do it. So let's talk about Bildad and his theology and why he focuses on prosperity and goodness and what we're truly actually supposed to focus on. So when Bildad first shows up, I'll read you the same verses that I read you last week about when his friends arrived. This is Job chapter 2, verses 11 to 13. And it says, Now when Job's three friends heard of all this evil that had come upon him, they came each from his own place, Eliphaz the Temanite, Bildad the Shuite, and Zophar the Naamathite. They made an appointment together to come and show him sympathy and comfort him. And when they saw him from a distance, they did not recognize him. Again, it's because he has covered in boils, he shaved his head, he's torn his clothes, he's got ashes all over him. And they raised their voices and wept, and they tore their robes and sprinkled dust on their heads towards heaven. And they sat with him on the ground seven days and seven nights. And no one spoke a word to him, for they saw that his suffering was very great. Now open your Bibles to Job chapter 6. What you see here is they come and they sit in silence. And again, that first guy, Eliphaz, speaks. When Eliphaz is done, this is what Job says. And it's almost like a challenge. Why don't you try and show me where I've been wrong? Uh, Job 6, verses 24 to 27, Job says, So teach me, and I will be silent. Make me understand how I've gone astray. You guys keep telling me this is my fault? Well, tell me how. How forceful are upright words, but what does reproof from you reprove? Like, what you say doesn't really mean anything if I haven't actually sinned in the way that you said. Do you think that you can reprove? Prove words when the speech of a despairing man is wind? Would you even cast lots over the fatherless and bargain over your friend? So show me if you think you can where I've been wrong. And this is where Bildad steps in and he's like, challenge accepted. And he goes for it and just starts laying into Job for chapters. And he seeks to educate Job with very bad theology what's going on in Job's life. Now let me give you some background on Bildad here. Bildad is what is called a Shuite. Uh, Shuite is not where he's from. That is who he is descended from. And this would refer to Genesis chapter 25. In Genesis 25, you've got a guy named Abraham. Abraham is the patriarch of the, of the Hebrew faith. He's the first one listed. There's a lot of people in the world that want to trace themselves back to who Abraham is today. And so Abraham looks like he's getting to the end of his life. His wife Sarah, the one that bore the child of the promise that God promised would come, bore Isaac, she has died. And you almost think it's time for Abraham to die, but he doesn't. What Abraham does is he gets married again. And he's probably about 100 years old. He's very virile because he has more kids in this. Um, Genesis 25, verse 1. Abraham took another wife. Don't know when. There's a lot of debate on it, but he gets married has more kids. Whose name was Keturah. She bore him Zimran, Jokshan, Medan, Midian, Ishbak, and Shua. You don't know if I said those names right, neither do I, but you know, the Shuites come from that guy, from Abraham's second wife. And then it says in verse 5, Abraham gave all he had to Isaac, but to the sons of his concubines, Abraham gave gifts. And while he was still living, he sent them away from Isaac eastward towards the east country. Now, a lot of people overlook these things in the book of Genesis that happen here. Uh, Sarah dies, Abraham finds a new wife. He's probably lonely, doesn't know how to do life alone like a lot of dudes are. Most commentators, Jewish and non-Jewish, are actually split over this because half of them think that this Keturah, this wife that he brought was actually Hagar, that he went and brought Hagar back into his life. Now I know that it says concubines plural, but in the Hebrew there's not this thing called a yod, you don't care, but it could actually be singular and refer to Hagar. What we need to understand here is that there's nothing sinful about Abraham taking Keturah as a second wife after Sarah, his first wife, dies. But Abraham sends all these other kids away. Uh, He gives everything he has to Isaac, but 
gives gifts to them so when they go places, they can start out, start anew, be able to have a good base to, to do that from. And the indications are that Shua went to a region on the western side of Chaldea that borders Arabia. Now, this is interesting because today, archaeologically speaking, we have found in this locality, on both sides of the Euphrates, these Assyrian descriptions that refer to this people that are most likely the Shuites. And so Bildad's ancestors, they would have seen the great blessings that God gave to Abraham, the wealth and the prosperity, and the things then that they had left with, and how they worked really, really hard, and they became very wealthy, so much so that other nations around them actually noticed. Shua's name, it even means wealth. And so when you get to Bildad, this is deep in his psyche of the people he comes from. And just like us, many times that worldview has warped his theology. He puts almost his nationality above his faith and who God is. And so this he has the idea of you work hard, you do the right thing, God has to bless you. This is why people in America today, we have a theology that many times look, looks a lot like Bildad's. Uh, Dr. Zeus, I know he's coming under a lot of fire this week in the news, but Dr. Zeus, all the way back in 1942, you know, had Horton Hatch's neg. What does he say? I meant what I said, and I said what I meant, an elephant's faithful 100%. That's the idea. You work hard, you do well, God will bless you, and God's going to make you prosperous. It used to be the American dream. And I'm not saying we shouldn't work hard. We should work very hard because we're working as for Jesus. But many times it's the idea, well, I worked hard, so God has to give me this. I mean, the American dream. Come to America, work hard, you're going to prosper and have a good life. I know the American dream today seems to be fall down, sue someone, and get rich, or vote people in that give you money, but, but I digress. It's interesting because the person Bildad was descended from that they probably thought all their theology came about actually proved Bildad's theology to be wrong. That's what it did, because God didn't bless Abraham because Abraham was good or right, but simply because God himself was good. That's why Abraham was blessed. So this is where I'm going to put my question for the live stream today, and this is the one that I want you to answer. In what ways do you think our culture has skewed your theology? In what ways do you think the things that you believe because of how you grew up in your family, your culture, whatever it is, how do you think that has informed your theology? Now, open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 12. We're going to walk through some stuff with this guy named Abraham because this is where my message gets easy because this is where Bildad traces himself to. So let's just go ahead and look at Abraham and his background and then we'll come back to talk about why Bildad's theology was just dumb. So in Genesis 12, uh, God calls Abraham. This is how it starts. Genesis 12 verse 1. Now the Lord said to Abram, that eventually changes his name to Abraham. Now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And in the text, Texas is really, and go to the land that I will show you. And I really love how God just shows up here. God's not like, hey, Abraham, been alive a long time. How's it going? What do you think about this? God's just like, okay, Abraham, let's go. That's how he shows up. John Calvin says, what God asked Abraham to do was close his eyes, take God's hand, and walk with him. Where? Wherever God was leading. And God will start to make all these promises to Abraham. I will do this. I will do this. I will do this. None of those promises are based upon Abraham. Verse 2, God says, and I will make of you a great nation. This, in Abraham's mind, would refer to he would have children who would have children who would have children to become a great nation. Well, he has a barren wife, and his wife is well beyond years to have a child, and you're going to be a great nation. And Abraham believes God. This is why he's a prototype of faith. And then it says, God says, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. Why does God make people great? Why does God bless people? So that they in turn would be a blessing. We don't always do that, but that's why God 
does it. So God blesses Abraham and promises through Abraham that eventually Jesus would come. You can have a son to a son to a son to a son that eventually leads to God's son who is Jesus. Abraham doesn't really understand that. And it takes a couple decades before he even gets his child of the promise. And Abraham, when he receives God's promises here, is most likely about 75 years old. Imagine 75 years old. You're thinking of retirement, and you're done, your life is winding down, then God shows up and goes, let's go. Whole new adventure. And it's like, oh my goodness. And you have to understand when God showed up to Abraham, Abraham wasn't blameless and upright, a man who, you know, feared God and turned away from evil. That's not who he was. Abraham is living in a pagan city. Abraham is worshiping pagan gods. And yet God shows up and blesses him and calls him. And so Abraham uh, packs up his family. I always like to see us as picking up, uh, packing up his walker and his diaper, and he starts to head off to follow God. And you will see through this, Abraham loses sight of where God leads him over and over again. But God is the one who shows up over and over again to show that he is good and that we are not. Again, it is the incredible honesty of the Bible as it deals with the tragic heroes of our faith as they just crash and burn all the time. Abraham's faith is in, imperfect. It's why our faith is in the perfectness of who God is, the faithfulness of who God is himself. Now, I'm going to make this more brief than I normally do. If you want to go more into depth, you can listen to our Genesis series we did years ago. It's about a year and a half long, uh, but you can listen to that. Uh, but in Genesis 12:10, you want to flip there. God now takes Abraham, and he's leading all those people who committed to follow Yahweh, the God of the Bible, to this new land. And this is what we read, uh, Genesis 12:10. Now there was a famine in the land. Well, where's that land? That's the land that God is leading Abraham to. In Bildad's theology, someone must have done something wrong on the way that God would cause a famine to take place there. Well, why would God do that? Why would God cause a famine in the land that God is leading Abraham to? Someone must have done something to make God angry. And this is like us today. When bad things happen or things get hard, we question God. What's God's will? Well, if it was really God's will, then everything would just be easy. Really? No. That's not how God typically grows us. Sometimes where God leads us and what he allows in our life is not fun. It is not wonderful. It is not easy. Abraham is in a place of want. Prosperity theology comes along and says, well, if you had faith, then God would take care of everything. You have enough faith and everything's taken care of. And that is not true because God allows us to be tested so we would understand what our faith actually looks like and come to trust God's faithfulness. Genesis 12.10, now there was a famine in the land, so Abram went down to Egypt to sojourn there. I always say this, down is not good, hell is down, but that's where he's going. For the famine was severe in the land. God did not tell Abraham to go to Egypt, but he goes. Why? Because he's afraid. Here's a famine. What am I supposed to do? He doesn't trust God to be God. And so he goes to this place. Verse 11, when he was about to enter Egypt, he said to Sarah, his wife, I know that you are a woman beautiful in appearance. Ladies, if you're on a camel, sweaty, stinky, been riding for days on end, covered in dirt and grime and sand, and your husband looks at you and says, oh, you're a woman beautiful in appearance, just know that sin is in short order, because that's what's going to happen here. Verse 12, and when the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife. Then they will kill me, but they will let you live. Say you are my sister, that it may go well with me because of you, and that my life may be spared for your sake. Oh, I'm only thinking about you, Sarah. Now, the reason he says this is that if he is her brother, the Egyptians will try to do nice things for him in order to give them permission to have and take Sarah. So it's kind of like this way he's kind of setting him, himself up. But he's thinking in his head, those Egyptians, they aren't godly people like me. They're terrible people, you know, so I better protect myself. What does Abraham not do in any of this? 
talk to God. He doesn't talk to God at all. He doesn't turn from his sin. He doesn't trust God to faithfully walk with him back to where God called him to go in the first place and just go home. Bildad's theology is falling apart here. God never called Abraham to go to Egypt. He called him to go to Canaan. And sometimes when we get caught up in sin, we stop trusting who God is. We just push deeper into our dumb choices and our bad theology. Sometimes there are people who make really bad choices and they jump into sin and they think, well, if I just sin more, like I get caught in a lie, well, I'll just lie more. And they just go deeper and deeper into it. Guys, sin doesn't fix sin. It just makes more sin. And that's what happens here. Verse 14, when Abram entered Egypt, the Egyptians saw that the woman, that's his wife, was very beautiful. So he's right. She is beautiful. And when the princes of Pharaoh saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh and the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house. And this means that Pharaoh is intending for her to be one of his women. And what does Abraham do? Nothing. Nothing. Uh, What does Sarah do in the midst of this? Also, she doesn't say anything either. I cannot imagine a lot of women like this. I mean, a lot of women look at their husbands and they're just like, don't even think about it. Like, I swear, like a lot of women, like the Egyptians are taking her away. She'd be like, no, he's a liar. That's my husband. Kill him. She may also be thinking, too, that Abraham is now like a homeless nomad, lives in a tent. She might be thinking, you want to give me to a guy with a house and a palace? Fine, I'll I'll take that. That, that, That's where I'll go. But the idea here is that Pharaoh taking her to his house is very ominous in the text. Because what does Pharaoh do with women in his house? He breaks commandments. Uh, Verse 16, And for her, that Sarah's sake, he, Pharaoh, dealt with Abram. And he, Abraham, had sheep, oxen, male donkeys, male servants, female servants, female donkeys, and camels. Abraham gets stuff. Abraham becomes prosperous. Abraham gets hashtag blessed. Why? He was in sin. He was doing the wrong thing. He essentially, in our vernacular today, almost pimps his wife out to get stuff. Abraham is very self-centered. He is looking only on his own safety. He sins. And what you see is that Abraham fails, and Sarah fails, and Pharaoh fails, and everyone fails. But it is God, again, who is faithful because we are so faithless so much of the time. And in the text, God does some funny things. Verse 17, But the Lord afflicted Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarah, Abram's wife. Now, this is meant to look like comedy. It's meant to be like a, like a sitcom almost in the text where Pharaoh's like, I'm going to wedding night. I got my new wife. I'm going to show her the magic that is Pharaoh. And boom, here's a disease. The, the text doesn't say what it was, but the way it's written, not to be vulgar, but it kind of implies where it actually was. It's like, that doesn't look good. Verse 18, So Pharaoh called Abram and said, What is this you have done to me? I mean, this is obviously the disease, but all the stuff that's now going on. What is this you have done? I know this isn't my fault. Abraham is probably out counting all the stuff he's got from Pharaoh, all of his prosperity. The guys show up. Uh, Pharaoh needs to talk to you. Okay. And he shows up and he's like, yeah, you know, uh, he comes clean. She is my wife. And God did tell us to come here, but he also did say he'd protect us and the people couldn't mess with us or or he'd stop that. You know, and Pharaoh says this, why did you not tell me she was your wife? Why did you say she is my sister so that I took her for my wife? Why did Abraham do that? Because he was afraid. Because he didn't trust God. And he failed. He didn't trust God to actually be God. Pharaoh at this time is a guy who tells everybody that he is a God. And if the guy who runs around telling everybody he's a God tells you you've got a fear and a pride problem, you should probably think about that. He says, now then, here's your wife. Take her and go. And Pharaoh gave men orders concerning him. And they sent him away with his wife and all that he had. 
Now, it's important to note in Genesis 12, when you first start looking at Abraham, he, when he is saved, speaks to people around him. And the text indicates that there are a lot of converts who followed him when he went to this new land. And just 10 verses later, Abraham is a deplorable representative of who God is. And what you have to understand is the Bible doesn't hide that. It shows it in all its honesty. Bildad's theology, like many people today, implies that for some reason out there, there are some people who deserve to be blessed because they have somehow done the right thing. And the scriptures show us over and over again that God does not work with just the good guys because there aren't any good guys. And so what God does is he takes us as the bad guys, and he changes us because he loves us. And this is what God does and will do with Abraham over and over and over and over again because his God is always the hero of the story. God delivered Abraham not because Abraham was good, but because God himself is good, and God intends to grow Abraham. We need to understand that we are a people who are saved in spite of our morality. Not that we shouldn't be moral people, we should, but we're saved in spite of it, not because of it. No one deserves to be blessed because they've done the right thing. God shows up and starts with Abraham and says, I'm going to give you all these promises. I will do this and I will do that and I will do this and I will do that and I will bless you and you will become a blessing. Why would God say that? Most likely because Abraham was not being a blessing at that point. Now, go in your Bibles back to Job chapter 18. Job gets to a place where he's suffering in his life. And Bildad's response, Job 18 verse 5, says, Indeed, the light of the wicked is put out and the flame of his fire does not shine. Verse 21 of chapter 18. Surely such are the dwellings of the unrighteous. Such is the place of him who knows not God. What he's talking about is Job's place. You are in the place of someone who doesn't know God, Job. All these things that have happened to you come about because of what you have done. And Bildad will say, God is a God of justice. And Job never will once deny that. And Bildad will go after Job ten different times with words like that in these short chapters. He keeps telling Job that if Job were righteous, then everything would have actually gone well and these things wouldn't have happened. And eventually, because of his words, he will break Job. In Job 19, verse 2, Job will finally respond, How long will you torment me and break me in pieces with words? These ten times you have cast reproach upon me. Are you not ashamed to wrong me? And even if it be true that I have erred, my error remains with myself. If indeed you magnify yourselves against me and make my disgrace an argument against me, know then that God has put me in the wrong and closed his net about me. Now, you may not see it that clearly, but right here, Job starts to lose it. And he starts to question God like he hasn't before. And this is the problem when we have horrible, bad theology that's all based upon our our own morality and not who God is. That it doesn't just hurt us, it hurts other people around us as well. And Job now starts speaking about his relationship with God in brand new terms. Job 19, verse 7. Behold, I cry out violence, but I am not answered. I call for help, but there is no justice. He, that's God, has walled up my way so that I cannot pass, and he has set darkness upon my past. He has stripped from me my glory. This is my wealth, my health, my kids, and taken the crown from my head. Where Job's focus was once, blessed be the name of the Lord, now where's his focus? On himself and his own glory. It becomes all about him. Verse 10, he says, he, that's God, breaks me down on every side, and I am gone, and my hope he has pulled up like a tree. He has kindled his wrath against me, and he counts me as his adversary. And this is sad because we know that's not true. Because we've seen the book. We know that Job is someone who was loved by God. Job is someone who God looked at and said he's blameless. God loved Job. 
And so often in the midst of trial and hardship, we get to a place where we think God doesn't love or care about us, and He does. See, when we tend to get into hardship, we lose sight of who God really is in our lives. And this is why at Element, we spend so much time talking about the gospel. Because if we are going to step into one another's lives, like Bildad, we have to be able to speak of the good news of who God is and what he has done to rescue us. That, yes, there are no good guys, but God is good. And he rescues and saves us and draws us back to himself so we can speak the true words of the gospel. The gospel is the good news that Jesus stepped into the mess that we had made. He died for our sin. He rose from the grave. And instead of being our adversary, he becomes our advocate. Eventually, Job will say, I want to stand before God and I want a lawyer next to me to to stand there with me. And the interesting thing is when Jesus comes, he does come as our advocate. When we trust Jesus, all of his righteousness is given to us. Why? Because we have none of our own. Abraham wasn't righteous. He looked at the Egyptians and Pharaoh as the other and so acted like a hypocrite. Bildad wasn't righteous. He has horrible theology that skews the character of God and breaks his friend. And in the end, Job isn't righteous. He accuses God of things that are not true. So how about our lives? When we suffer, where is our hope? When we fail, where is our hope? When we fall, where is our hope? Well, it's in Jesus himself. That's where it has to be. See, in the scriptures, Jesus comes and becomes one of us. He who knew no sin took on the weight and the burden of sin on the cross for our sake. He who was perfect took on all the broken imperfections and darkness of every single one of us. The story of Jesus is not someone who dies at the hands of his enemies. It's a story of someone who dies for the sake of his enemies because we could not pay for our sin on our own. It is just simple human beings and a sinless Savior who took on the sins of the world. In 1 John chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, John says, My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Jesus advocates for us because we cannot advocate for ourselves. And his advocation over us is his own righteousness. That's what it is, not ours. And when we are broken, and when we are lost, and when we are hurting, and when we have filled what we failed, those may all be true. But new words of grace have been spoken over us because we are first found in Christ. As our hope is not in our morality, though, though we should be a moral people. But our hope does not become, come from that. Our hope comes from the great God who has rescued and saved us. That's where our hope comes from. And we must be a people when we speak to one another who go there. Not to, well, you should have done it better. Well, God's mad at you because of this. God's mad at you because of that. You're going to have disaster in life because of this. We have to understand that we are all bad guys and God is the only good one. We must be a people who speak that truth to one another. This is one of the reasons that Element, every week after the message, we move to this place where we talk about communion. Because communion takes us to a place where we think about and remember and understand what the gospel really is. It is Christ's death for us and his resurrection. It is that he gave his life for us. And that's why you take a cracker and and you break it like his body was broken for us. And you dip it in wine or grape juice or drink wine and grape juice as it reminds us of his blood that was shed for you and me. That he brings us back into relationship with God. He takes our death and gives us his life. He takes our sin and gives us his righteousness. He is the only one that can do it. And this is what we understand as we look through the book of Job. Job is in a place where all of his friends say, you have no hope unless you do it right. 
And we are in a place today where we understand what Christ did for us and that our hope is in the only person who ever did do it right, which was Christ himself and not in us. Let us learn to be a people who love and follow him because of who he is and what he has done. And that should bring us humility and it should bring us great joy because our hope is found in him. Uh, I'm going to invite the the band to come up. Uh, It's kind of nice saying that again. Uh, And as they do, if you guys need prayer, you know, if you're in a spot where you feel like you have to do it right or God's mad at you because you messed up, there may be some consequences that come in your life because you've made some really poor choices. Again, God takes away our sin to restore us to relationship with Him. And sometimes, though, there actually are these consequences that come about because of some of the things that we do. But God is good and rescues us and will walk with us through all those different times and places. Guys, we must be a people who understand God's great grace spoken over us. And if you need someone to pray with you about that, we would love to do that. And you can send a, an email to connectedourelement.org, prayeredourelement.org, and someone would love to get a hold of you and pray with you through those things. Uh, because of God's generosity, we also become a very generous people. And if you would like to give, you have that opportunity every week, every day. Uh, you can do it online. You can swing by here and do it here. But we become a generous people simply because God has been so generous with us, that left to our own devices, we would never be generous. We'd be solely self-focused. But we become generous because of what God has first done. God has first blessed us, so we bless others. And this week, as you begin to walk through you know, those, those questions in the Lent journey guide, what I would encourage you to do is think through all the ways that maybe our culture has influenced your theology, maybe change some of the ways that we should really think about God and understand His grace, and be a people who always come back to the place of God's grace spoken over us, the gospel as the good news, and that's how we would speak to one another, especially places and people in places of lost and lost and brokenness, that we would speak the truth of God's great rescue because God is a rescuer. And we praise Him and thank Him for that. Let's pray. Father, today, we ask that You would open our eyes to be able to see the ways that maybe how we were raised or the culture that we are in have kind of skewed sometimes the, the grace of who you are. That you would help us to see the ways of who you are much more clearly so that we would step out of those things and walk more clearly in the truth of the gospel. That you would have us be a people who understand so deeply what the gospel really means and is that good news that you died in our place for our sins that you rose and you brought us to life in relationship with you again and that would be the basis for where we see and view other people it would be the basis for how we start our conversations and how we end our conversations that we would be a gospel filled and a gospel centered people And when we hear certain things like bad theology, we don't just start judging someone for their bad theology, but we would take a step back and think, how can I also steer them towards the gospel so that we as a people can all live in great freedom and great hope no matter what tragedies befall our lives, that we always have a hope because you are the one who has come and brought us that great hope. Teach us to be a people who speak of your grace where we are, exactly where we are. Not just to ourselves, but to those around us, so that you are glorified and honored. And we ask all these things 
in your son's graceful name. Amen.